The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Zero agencies released any additional records between at least like 2002 and 2017. Nobody did a thing. Congress dropped its oversight authority, didn't follow up, and everybody was busy with other things. We had 9-11, we had the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. So this all dropped to you know a point where only those JFK geeks like Gerald and I were constantly saying, where are the records, where are the records? So it, it's true that there's still even today catch up that's being played by these agencies, but the reality is it's because they failed to do their job during the last two decades. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 22nd, 2021. President Biden recently authorized the release of almost 1,500 documents related to the JFK assassination, but 10 times that number still have had their release deferred. What might be in them? What's holding them back from release? And how did we get here? I spoke with journalist and best-selling author Gerald Posner, who wrote the Pulitzer finalist Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald, and the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and attorney Mark Zaid, who, apart from representing government whistleblowers and representing current and former U.S. government officials trying to publish their stories or remediate illegal employment actions, has also been very active in the JFK assassination documents area for some 30 years. We talked about the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act, the work of the review board that the legislation set up, what is in these new documents, and what comes next. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 22nd. The JFK Assassination Documents, with Gerald Posner and Mark Zaid. We want to talk about this new document release related to the John F. Kennedy assassination. But to do that, we really need to go back in time. And we're, we're not going to go back in time to the assassination itself or even to the Warren Commission. But Gerald, I want to start with you. Tell us about the 1992 John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act. What did that piece of legislation do and what were the results of its actions? You know, David, it is really, um, you know, as a result of Oliver Stone's film, JFK, I mean, the, the, the pushback against it sort of forced this public law to be passed by Congress in uh, October of 92, uh, about a month before it would have been the anniversary of the assassination. 
you know, the full name is the president, uh, John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act. And uh, it redirects that a review board, an independent agency, the review board would be established and consider reviewing and go over all of the, what was an assassination document. And that of course was a cause for debate for a five-year period sometimes. People often forget that at the time the law was passed, 98% of all Warren Commission documents had been released to the public, but, uh, you know, except for things like income tax returns and that, but there was still then, of course, the critical amount that hadn't been released and, and other agencies might have documents that were related. So the Assassination Review Boards then spent literally five years before a report came out with uh, what it viewed as uh, public documents and which those would be released and uh, and then set a time schedule that was 25 years for what would be the release from the National Archives of the final batch of documents, and that passed in 2017. Now, you raised a couple of points there that I want to dig deeper on. So first, the JFK movie with uh, Oliver Stone's movie, which was, how do I say this? It was presented almost as a documentary. It was presented in a factual way, even though it was in many ways, clearly not. And yet it influenced public opinion more so than just about any movie on a controversial issue that that I can think of, such that the American public did not overwhelmingly think that there was a conspiracy before the movie in polls taken in, for example, the 1980s. But in recent decades, it's something like 60, 70% of Americans believe that others beside, besides Oswald were involved in the assassination. So the JFK movie was was important here for the the mood of the public. Do you feel like it drove the records review board to investigate some areas that were essentially dead ends just because they were in the public sphere? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Mark may have a different feeling on this, but I think that uh, the the records review board was was charged and knew that its brief was to take a broader view, a more liberal view of what an assassination record was, so that nobody could then later claim, ah, you failed to get the documents from X agency or, or Y division, um, or you didn't look at this part of history, you didn't look at something after the assassination that that might be part of the puzzle. So I think they did cast a very wide net. And, and I think your description's right. Look, there's always been a majority of Americans since which, since Jack Ruby killed Oswald, we were guaranteed we'd never get to final answers about the case. And as, as things took place in the 60s between lies over Vietnam and Watergate and later Iran-Contra and people lost faith in government, the, I think the, the skepticism about the uh, Warren Commission and the assassination being the work of one assassin grew. Then Stone fed it uh, with this film that is a, a wonderful, great film, but just terrible history. And, you know, when he was under assault for having, you know, played so loose with the facts and having based it on the most discredited of the conspiracy theories that of, of Jim Garrison, the former uh, New Orleans prosecutor, uh, he said, well, I'm not saying it's the truth. I'm just saying it's the Warren Commission had its version of history, and this is my version of history. But I assure you that if, you know, somebody with Stone's talent as a filmmaker made a film that said the Holocaust was a hoax and said, this isn't the truth, it's just my version of history, people would be out in front of the theaters demanding that it be taken away. So, right. uh, but here we sort of allowed it, and it, it did galvanize the public, galvanize Congress, and that was good because 
the JFK Act and the AARB is a very good development, long overdue in some ways. Mark, let's talk about the second aspect there, about the actual records themselves, because the Warren Commission process and even the House investigation later in the 1970s did unearth a lot of documents and virtually everything that was directly related to the assassination itself was out there. So what kinds of documents was the Assassination Records Review Board looking at? And and how did that, in a sense, lead us to the situation where there are tens of thousands of national security related documents that still were pending release until recently, and some even now? Is that in large part because of that choice to really expand the searchlight for the kinds of things that could be related to this? And that jumps off of what Gerald was talking about. The AARB was not created to investigate the assassination. It was created to identify and hopefully obtain any JFK assassination records and including artifacts like physical items, clothing, films like the Zapruder film, etc. And I actually co-wrote a law review article back in 1993. I think it was for southwest texas law school or something back when you were a, a young attorney in your 50s I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just out of law school and what we did in that article was actually set the groundwork for the review board which at that time didn't even exist yet and we sketched out where are the key documents that are missing either physically missing or being withheld that could answer questions. And sometimes those questions did involve theories that Gerald and I and others would completely disregard. But the problem was, and I spent a lot of my time early in my early years when I was doing research on the case of actually trying to debunk conspiracy theories that remained out there because I always felt they're never going to solve the case. And I now think they're never going to solve the case. But 30, 40 years ago, when I was working on stuff, you needed to get, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff or however that saying goes to be able to identify where the, the true facts are. So like Gerald said, the majority of the information was already out there in large part and was becoming more available because of technology as computers became more prominent and you could, I remember it took me forever to find a physical set of the Warren Commission, 26 volumes. And then by the mid 1990s or so, you could buy it on a CD-ROM, which was incredible. Say in yeah. the House Select Committee volumes as well. And I helped to craft the definition that the review board ultimately adopted. And it's very broad and it doesn't have to actually be involve the assassination itself, meaning like anything relating to intel operations involving Cuba in post-Castro to whenever would be considered an assassination record because of the nature of the interactions between Oswald and Cuba and Kennedy and Castro. So as we got now to where we are now, I mean, there are still about 14,000 documents still withheld, if, if I know my number correct. Don't know how many pages that is. This last release, which we'll talk about more, mm-hmm. was almost 1,500 documents, but almost 20,000 pages of information that was released. And a good number of the records that are being withheld in full now, 
the government actually doesn't have any ability to release them yet. So there's IRS records, I think Gerald mentioned by statute, by law, they can't be released unless that's over and a process to overcome that. There are documents that remain under seal by courts that have to be dealt with. There are documents or items in private hands that are subject to deeds of gift of donations to the archives that aren't going to be open publicly for way past our lifetime. We're going to drill down on a lot of those categories a bit later, but to set the stage for it, back to you, Gerald, the Assassinations Records Review Board did get a lot of documents out to the public in the 1990s. Now, you wrote Case Closed, which I will put out the disclaimer here. Your book, Case Closed, is one of the two books that I recommend to anybody who asks me about the Kennedy assassination and its investigations. Yours was written in the early 90s. I also recommend Reclaiming History by Vincent Bugliosi, if people can still find the full version, which is thousands of pages without even the notes, which are only, I believe, on CD-ROM or electronic. Yep. Those are the two I recommend. And there's a difference between the two, right? Because you wrote your book before these documents that were prompted by the review board came out. And I have to admit, I did not buy your new version with the afterword that addressed some of these issues. But I did read all of Vincent Bugliosi's book. And he, of course, finished this in something like 2007, 2008, and had the benefit of all of the 1990s released documents. Can you talk through what, if anything, we learned from that batch of documents that were pushed out by the Records Review Board during the 1990s? And did it change anything that we fundamentally thought about Oswald or the assassination itself? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question, David, because I actually, um, you know, very, very aligned with what Mark was saying a moment ago, that my thinking in the early 90s, even when I was starting to work on the book, was that you couldn't come to a conclusion about what had happened in the assassination, what you could do. And I'm a non-practicing attorney, but with a legal head and as an investigator, as, an, as a journalist, you could go ahead and try to do what Mark was trying to do, and that is separate the wheat from the chaff to figure out what the good information was from the bad information. In the end, I did think that there was a conclusion that you could have on the on the overriding truth. But what the documents released by the ARB did is they added a wealth of information to what I think is the, the Warren Commission investigation and the post-investigation period by the FBI and the CIA. You know that... Uh, I think the former chairman, John Tunheim, and, uh, had written in the Boston Globe it maybe seven or eight years ago that the AARB that he had been chairman of had declassified five million documents. It's an incredible body of, uh, wow. of work. And included in there were you know hundreds of documents that had been CIA documents we hadn't seen before. I think that it taught me that if I was rewriting uh, Case Closed, I would be much harder on my criticism of both the CIA and the FBI, particularly the CIA, for their obfuscation in Mexico City, their lack of candor, their failure to have assisted the Warren Commission and been forthright, their keeping uh, facts away from the commission because of their own concerns that it would would disclose their, their plots to kill Castro with the mafia. So I think that what we've learned is in terms of history is that the Warren Commission was served at times very poorly 
by the investigating bodies. They had no other choice. There was no other way that they could investigate the murder. And that, I think, is... Uh, has uh, been to the criticism, uh, deservedly so, of those agencies. And let me cite just a couple of documents that came out, if, if I have followed it correctly, things that weren't known to the Warren Commission, but of course were known to the information records people at CIA that, that pulled these things together at the time, but not revealed until the 1990s. We had, for example, the CIA, and I believe the FBI also, they knew in the fall of 1963 that Oswald had traveled to Mexico City just weeks before the assassination. Not just that, but had met with Cuban and Russian intelligence officers, and also that the CIA failed to notify the Warren Commission about the agency's repeated attempts during John F. Kennedy's term to assassinate Castro. The logic being, of course, that these were not directly related to the shooting itself, and they were embarrassing to the agency. So perhaps someone in the agency made the choice in the Warren Commission era not to move these documents forward. But in the 1990s, those documents did come out, not necessarily shining light on the assassination itself, but certainly shining a negative light on the agencies and their behavior during the time of the Warren Commission. So Mark, play that out for me. Uh, What does that do in terms of both deepening the pool of material available in areas around the assassination, but also making people more skeptical about the very information that is still being withheld because now the, the, that reputational issue has really come into play. Now, it, it is very significant. And, and a lot of the distrust of the U.S. government and of what happened on November 22nd, 63, has been really created by the U.S. government itself by playing these types of games. I I remember having drinks one night with Judge Burt Griffin, who was a junior member of the Warren Commission staff 30 years ago. I had these drinks and he was on the Jack Ruby team. And he it turned out that Jack Ruby had been a low level informant of the FBI in 1959. It had nothing to do with Oswald. It had nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination. You know, he ran a strip club and was involved with or certainly associated with people involved with criminal activities mm-hmm. in Dallas. And that information was withheld from the Warren Commission by the FBI. And I, I remember talking to him about it, saying, well, you know, what would you have done differently? And he was like, I don't think it would have ultimately changed anything, but you better bet I would have asked different mm-hmm. questions. I could have gone down different paths and it would have led to a better conclusion because now you know, almost 60 years later, it seems that even as long as there is one document being withheld, regardless of the reason, then everybody in the conspiracy community thinks that's the one document. That document will reveal the truth of what's going on. And, you know, those of us and, and, you know, David, you spent your time in the CIA. I have been been in and around the CIA, not inside, but with clients for 30 years, you get to you get to understand how the documents are structured, how operations work, and and you learn why information is being withheld, and that it's almost never as amazing as you want to pretend that redacted sentence might be. You know, uh, the uh, when Mark says that, it's very interesting because sometimes I think if people who aren't involved in freedom of information requests or aren't involved in litigating for the release, as Mark is, uh, the lay public doesn't realize that, uh, you know, 
documents, sometimes a classification is withheld for something that might seem important to the agency, but it doesn't seem important uh, to the lay public. And so they can't quite believe they, they give much more meaning and importance to those documents. It's absolutely right what Mark said, that I think that it has the, right. the ceiling of those has added to the feeling that something big has been hidden. By the way, it, it is interesting that, you know, even in 93, I published in on the 30th anniversary in 93, the, the material that I ended up having on some of the Russian material wasn't from the, the files that are in the U.S. government that were released later by the ARB, but was because I was able to get a, a first ever interview with Yuri Nosenko. Mm -hmm. Nosenko's interviews have since been released. That material is there if you were looking at it. But at the same time, Oleg, uh, you know, Nechaparenko, who was the the KGB agent who was handling things in the Soviet Union, then was down in Mexico City, had written his own book and was available for an interview much of that's come out in the ARB files. So there were ways to get things that we were holding on to in the United States in the archives that others were willing to talk about, including the Soviets, when they released from Kiev most of the Russian files just before 92 to uh, Norman Mailer, of all people. Well, before we move forward closer to the current day, one other thing I want to hit. You've both talked about the review board and even mentioned one of its members. But uh, Mark, give us a little bit more flavor for this board. Who who were the members? Where did they come from? What background did they bring with them? And if you can talk about your, your assessment of how they did, given the mandate that they were given. Sure. So the chair was mentioned, John Thunheim, who then was the, I think, Deputy Attorney General of Minnesota, if I recall, and was appointed by President Clinton. Uh, he's now the chief district judge in Minnesota in the federal system. And then there were there was an academics that were put onto the, the board. I think there's only one other member of the five, unfortunately, who's still alive now. But they, they were neutrals. They really didn't have a background in the case at all. They, they were lawyers. They were academics. They were, I think some, well, at least one or so had some government experience. And then the staff were hired from Congress, the military. I'm, I'm in touch with quite a number of them today. Quite a number of them are still in government even 30 years later because they were they were generally pretty young uh, for the most part. And they were very dedicated because I continue to talk to them about it. They were very dedicated to get as much information out as possible uh, with, without weighing in on what they thought. I think only one member that I can think of has written some books since uh, the review board closed its doors in 1998. Mo most of them have never really said anything, but they all have their own little stories about how they were frustrated with the process in gaining access to records. Very much the same type of bureaucratic problems that we see in government all the time and that I interact with while I'm suing mm -hmm. the government and even the government lawyers are complaining to me that the agencies aren't disclosing information. But it was really a, a stellar group of people. Judge Thunheim is still involved with this effort. He still wants to ensure the records are out, but he'll tell you that, you know, he pretty much reviewed a large number of the more significant records that are still withheld because it's a small number overall percentage wise, at least. And, you know, he mm -hmm. always is warning, you know, don't don't think you're going to find an answer there. It's sort mm -hmm. of what Lee Harvey Oswald 
told his brother, Robert, you know, hey, Robert, you know, stop looking in my I'm going to paraphrase. Stop looking in my eyes. You're not going to find an answer there. Yeah. yeah. And if I could just add one thing on uh, to the ARB, uh, I'm not sure if Mark agrees with this. I, I agree with they, they did a stellar job and that they were neutral and they, they really were meticulous in, in trying to apply a fair and, and even standard. They also unwittingly created a, a problem for researchers dealing with subsequent releases of the documents. There was a database that was mandated by the the Records Collection Act. The database was supposed to provide a detailed index to the contents of the collection. It makes sense. The the main problem that led to this confusion is there was a failure to update the release status of each record. So in the five years that the ARB was around, the database was being assembled from 93 to 98. There were changes often in the status of the records and agencies argued with the board back and forth about, you know, what counted as an assassination related record and the standards that should be replied for redacting in that. Then those weren't always recorded in the database. And with hundreds of thousands of documents, that was a problem. So that when we get to the 2017 big release, and we can talk about that more later, it wasn't updated to reflect the status of those records. And it wasn't really until May of last year that the National Archives was able to do sort of this amazing large review, update the database largely, but they were still doing it as of September of this year. So it's difficult often with that database because of the way that it started when a new record is released to be able to immediately uh, see what its history was in terms of prior releases and what's been redacted in that. And that goes back to the sort of the start of the AARB in that database. Just to add, because that's clearly a significant problem about not being, and we'll talk about that with respect to the latest releases, but there were, I'll say failures, I'm using air quotes of the board of not being able to achieve certain things. But Oftentimes, the failure was because just like with the Warren Commission, which had to rely on the FBI for its investigative capabilities, and for the most part, it it didn't have the ability to do what it really wanted. So, for example, it had the mandate of trying to obtain records held by foreign governments, and Gerald mentioned some of them, but there are still voluminous amount of records that are held by very relevant foreign governments that would pertain to what they knew and did mm-hmm. at the time. Mexico, the United Kingdom, probably still some Russia. Who knows if Mailer or others got all of them. Cuba. Now, most of these countries have opened up some of their files, but I know people who have been still trying to get records that are withheld by the Mexican government. Mm-hmm. And the review board, the way that they had the authority to engage was they had to go through the State Department. You had to put a request into the State Department, then the State Department approached the foreign government. And let's just say the review board was not happy with the pace and the effort that the State Department put in at that time. And even if the State Department had prioritized this, it would be hard to imagine during the the 1990s with all the things going on after the end of the Cold War and democratization in Europe that, that the State Department would say, and all U.S. interactions with you will stop unless you give us these records, which in many countries' cases would largely be rumint. I mean, it wouldn't be hardcore information, but even if they did push hard, it's it's hard to knock the State Department and U.S. government policy for not saying the release of some third country records on the assassination take priority over other U.S. foreign policy goals. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's a bit of a stretch. Researchers would disagree, but 
got to say, there's a lot of other priorities and the State Department had to rack and stack those. But you're saying it's even worse than that because the State Department didn't even bother to follow up on some of these, right? I I think it would be fair to say that that is the case for some. I I know Mm -hmm. I have spoken to those with the review board and Mm -hmm. on that specific point, they had expressed disappointment with how the State Department failed to act on certain requests. Sure, sure. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, Gerald, you brought this up to 2017, and that's a key date because of the Assassination Records Collection Act itself, which said that all documents had to be released within 25 years. There was also a provision in that legislation, if I recall, that only the current president could make a choice to to stop that process, to withhold any documents. It was no longer in the hands of archivists or the agencies in any way, that it was in the hands of the president. So what happened in 2017? In 2017, it was really in the summer, uh, I think it was uh, July, uh, the archives began just releasing the remaining documents that had been withheld. And you know, the, the first release had great promise because there were over 400 uh, CIA mm-hmm. and FBI records that had previously been withheld in full. So that was a great uh, sign. And then I think about 3,000 more quickly came out by October. Donald Trump had first tweeted that uh, the JFK files would be opened and uh, subsequently signed an order to that effect. Uh, and the archives kept releasing files, uh, you know, released uh, over 13,000 uh, before the assassination, another grasp of uh, like 10,000 and kept doing it. But in the end, the total was just under 20,000 documents, I think, that had been released uh, under Trump's order. And there were still files that were held back, uh, that were restricted. And uh, and the president at that time decided to give them another three and a half years to be able to go through the objections of uh, the agencies that did not want them disclosed for whatever reason, still wanted redactions in them. Did he offer any deep reasoning for that, explaining why another three years on top of some, what, 55 years would actually make the difference here? The Mark uh, may well have the answer to that, but I never saw the deep reasoning. Trump wasn't one to give deep reasoning at any time. As a matter of fact, as somebody who had been hoping for the release of these files for a long time, I had high hopes, uh, politics aside, that Trump would be the president that would release them because 
here was a populist that came into office and no matter what you thought of him, talked about the deep state, quote unquote, being his enemy. And you would think that he would have very little patience or, or maybe wouldn't listen to the reasoning behind uh, the often legitimate objections of the agencies as to why they have a security concern or they don't want something public and would just say, order them all out. I thought it would take somebody who wasn't a Washington, longtime Washington veteran to do that. And I was surprised actually when uh, his advisors and the agencies and the National Archives were able to convince uh, Trump that uh, there was reason still not to just set everything out in full? Well, we, we had particularly high hopes because, you know, we, we knew then, we now know, you know, Trump generally reacts by whoever whispers in his ear last. And Gerald's good friend, Roger Stone, uh, who he, he would debate with, because Roger Stone is a huge conspiracy theorist and wrote a book on the JFK assassination. Mm -hmm. So it was actually, I'm going to, I'm trying to think it may be the only reason why it was a good thing that Roger Stone was actually working with President Trump, because we thought he would push for the records and he would be whispering in Trump's ear, release them or release them, release them. And, and I think that was the case up to a point. But what my sources told me was that Pompeo was the last one who whispered in his ears. And at the time, Pompeo was was the director at the CIA. And it's, you know, no shock. It's always been the CIA at the forefront of withholding the information most relevant to what people want to see. And there was, I'm told, a uh, an off the books meeting at the White House between Pompeo and President Trump, where Pompeo persuaded him to extend the deadline from 2017 to 2021 into the next administration, whether he thought it was going to be his own or not. And that's what happened. I, I think there might have been a public statement, as I recall, that would have been just generic in the sense of saying that additional time is needed in order to review the information to determine whether there's national secrets. I, I will tell you, having talked to numerous people behind the scenes, from the time the review board went out of existence in 1998 to when the 2017-25 year deadline was approaching, even though the review board was no longer there, the National Archives was still handling all the records and is the repository and, and has a staff dedicated to handling and coordinating and cataloging these records. And all of the agencies were required by law to continue with their processing of assassination records, which is under a different standard than the Freedom of Information Act. It is a much higher standard to withhold a record that is categorized or defined as an assassination record. During that time, I'm pretty confident in telling you that zero agencies <laughs> released any additional records between at least like 2002 and 2017. Nobody did a thing. Congress dropped its oversight authority, didn't follow up, and everybody was busy with other things. We had 9-11, we had the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. So this all dropped to, you know, a point where only those, you know, JFK geeks like Gerald and I, who were paying attention, were constantly saying, where are the records, where are the records? So it, it's true that there's still even today catch up that's being played by these agencies. But the reality is it's because they failed to do their job during the last two decades.
Yeah, and, and you know, and what to what Mark says, uh, David, uh, not only was there this long gap, but we now have a very clear picture because of the work by the National Archives of those 14,000 documents uh, that uh, Mark mentioned are still withheld, the ones that we now look forward to possibly being released. Because we know something about them, right? The That's index right. of these that, documents right. does reveal some information, if not the actual content. That's right. So we know that about 1,800 of them, you know, that have text redacted under the sections 10 of the act are, are almost all FBI records regarding organized crime. And then there are records that are marked 5G redactions. Those are the CIA has the dominant role in that. There are CIA related documents, about 11,000 of the 14,000 are that. So about 85, 86% of all those uh, documents that are held by the uh, uh, still back. And you can even t determine pretty well, that, you know, of those 11,000 documents, in those redactions, they include about half of them are only one page long, or there's, you know, that's about half of all those records. Uh, not not very difficult to read through them. They could be short cables or memos, and in that you'll deal sometimes with one or two redactions, a single word at times. Many are marked with what are these substitute codes to convey the content of the redactions, and they're marked by the AARB, who has saw most of them as NBR, not believed relevant. But of course, Tonheim, who's been the chairman, has said since maybe there was a document that I saw that I didn't think was relevant at the time, or we saw in the ARB, that in light of other information, what researchers know could be. So he doesn't dismiss that possibility. But I think we do have a pretty good idea of what's still there, although we are looking at the content coming up. That's what we're waiting for. Right. Well, let's get into this uh, December 2021 release. I clearly have not dug into all the documents, but I did poke in a little bit to see kind of what struck me about them. And what struck me about them was really two things. One was I was seeing documents that I swear I'd seen before that it didn't seem like news to me when I read some of these. And it may point to the issue, Gerald, you pointed out that maybe there was an earlier version released and it had one word redacted and now that word wasn't, but uh, there wasn't anything that really surprised me. And secondly, just how banal some of these things were. I, I saw one file that you know revealed a crank call, I think they called it, that was made to a US official in Australia before the assassination about some alleged plot by the Soviet Union against Kennedy, but it was it was defined as a crank call. And there was some memo or other document that was detailing the methods used to track Oswald when he did go to Mexico City, but it was about the methods. It was about the how how the CIA spies on you know Soviet agents in the country and how that was useful for tracking others. And then I think a summary, something something about how Oswald actually entered Mexico by car at the border or something like that. And in looking at the the representative sample of documents, Gerald, I'll turn this back to you first. It struck me that there was not that much interesting. And it really revealed a lot more about the US government, primarily CIA, but also FBI, about the US government's methods of investigating things overseas than it did about the details of the assassination itself. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and remember, in part, the expectations, I think Mark's expectations were probably low. He'll answer that. I mean, mine were for this December release, because 
President Biden has said essentially that the, the archives just released what you can now that the agency still, you know, the, the divisions and departments and FBI aren't fighting to to retain the things that really they don't care as much about that, you know, you can finally get rid of. So here we got the 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 1482, I think it is, that came out. And and it, there were times when I would send Mark a note, you know, send him a, a text, you know, is this new? Or, you know, and he'd say, I'm not sure. And, you know, and he'd say me something, is this new? Even though we've been looking at this for a long time, you do forget when you see a document, if it's fresh or not. And we're both part of a group of researchers online, most of whom think it's a conspiracy, but they're very good in terms of the documents. And they took that, for instance, that four page document that you mentioned that is a sort of a summary, the day of the assassination, it comes in mm-hmm. to CIA and talks about Oswald in Mexico City and and that he met with a uh, Soviet agent, Kostikov, uh, you know, beforehand. That became a headline in some of the tabloids like the Daily Mail and the New York Post. But we knew uh, that, right? And, right. We did know it. And not only that, but you saw process in the, in the emails back and forth with the researchers where they would say, is this new? Then somebody would say, no, it was released actually in 98. Then one researcher found out, Paul Hoke, that it was actually released beforehand and had been released in its entirety. It hadn't even been redacted. There was an unredacted version. Then it had been redacted in one line, stayed sealed for all this time. And then the archives released it unredacted. And Mark, I'll go to you with this. You actually understand and said you understood the reason for that one sentence redaction. It made sense. Yeah. And, and this was a what Gerald just described was repeatedly happening every day after these releases where everyone was looking. And I think ultimately, from what I've seen, one document someone has identified saying, I can't find this one anywhere. I don't think it's been released before. You know, does it contribute anything? It contributes historically, but not to the assassination itself. And and I think the one sentence that Gerald's referring to, and I think, David, you alluded to it. It, it was it said something like technical means meaning they had used some sort of, you know, audio surveillance, some sort of listening device to obtain information about Oswald. And I mean, that makes perfect sense as to why it would be withheld. It doesn't necessarily mean it deserved to be withheld for all those years. And as Gerald just described, it probably wasn't. But, you know, some of what I have seen in the decades I have been involved with this now, literally since I was a little kid, is just a failure of people to understand how the system works. And I'll give you one quick example. Oswald's visit to Mexico City in September of 63, he goes, as we've talked about, to the Soviet and the Cuban embassies. We had not only technical surveillance, photographs, audio, but we had sources. We had human sources that were reporting back to the U.S. government or other informants along the way that we learned about. None of this is new, but who they might be could conceivably be new. And if you think back who works in an embassy, you have a 25-year-old kid working in the embassy in 1963. That person is only in their early 80s now. They could still be alive. And you better bet that the Cuban government would take seriously if they were able to find an 87-year-old traitor which that would person would be considered for having worked for the CIA in 1963. Absolutely. It could still now it's a small number of documents that I'm sure that applies to, but that is a real life concern that still exists. No, not only you're absolutely right about that. And remember, we're looking at it just for the assassination. So we're thinking they they 
worked for the CIA, they were an asset for the CIA, they provided information to the CIA in 1963. But some of these individuals in their early 20s may have gone on for another decade or more in terms of assisting American intelligence. And so the minute they're identified, the Cubans, for instance, would know that they may have then been providing information on later subjects that were just or even more um, bothersome to the Cubans than information about the Kennedy assassination. And, I, and it's very interesting that it's the political sensitivity. It's where Department of State and CIA meet a little bit. You mentioned before that uh, technical means having been blocked out. It was actually in a paragraph in which they said that the president of Mexico had been made aware of the information in Mexico City that CIA knew of and was aware of the technical means utilized. And that was taken out because they didn't want to show that the president of Mexico was aware of CIA spying on the sure. Cuban and Soviet missions and, uh, and hadn't said anything about it. So there's also a political sensitivity to it all these years later. So it seems to me we've walked through here a lot of valid reasons why some of these documents, maybe not all of them that are still remaining, but some of these documents, there is a case to be made why they have been delayed. Uh, one of them from the FBI side, it could be informants who are still alive. Even if those informants weren't giving information directly related to the assassination, if they're mentioned in a document, that identity could be revealed. On the CIA side, there's what we'll generally call sources and methods, like Mark alluded to, but specific ways that information is collected that either could still be going on in that country or could reveal something about people who worked with the United States up to and including assets of the United States intelligence agencies. You have to clear both of those hurdles before you get to the third one, which historically has been a barrier, as we learned with the Warren Commission and the CIA. But I'm wondering if it's less of a concern now, which is the reputational angle, the belief that, let's say the CIA, but it could be the FBI or any other agency or department, the belief that a government entity, people acting on behalf of that entity are making choices to continue to withhold information using national security reasons as an excuse simply to keep something embarrassing from coming out. And the reason I wonder if that's reduced now is because you have had the CIA history staff itself in recent years cop to the fact that the CIA held out on the Warren Commission. In a way, it would behoove them to open up these documents and not use a reputational excuse. So I kick that to the two of you, Gerald first, and then Mark. Do you think that that reputational concern is actually better now and bodes well for many of these documents to come out within the next few years? I actually do think the reputational concern bodes well for the documents to come out in, in the next few years. And I'm, and I'm hoping that uh, th that happens and it, it doesn't accelerate the process. It's not going to come out any faster than uh, the schedule that Biden has used, uh, the president has used. But um, I, I think it's important it does get out. And it's just one very quick example. Uh, when material is still redacted or withheld, it allows for, and we talked about this earlier, uh, you know, sort of uh, speculation about the worst possible conclusions, including still a conspiracy. There are good researchers, for instance, that that focus on this 87-page long CIA file on Amspel, uh, CIA cryptonym for a once pro-Castro student group. And, uh, you know, that file was released in November of 2017, uh, and then again, it was released in 2018. Had a big portion that was held back then the first time, like 
50 or 60 pages were held back and the second time it was released, I think there were nine pages. Now people focus on those nine pages. You know, they used to say the whole thing is important. Then they got it except for, you know, 60 and they said, okay, let's see more. Then they got it except for nine. Now parts are, are redacted. And there are reasons why I don't think that will be important, but I think it's absolutely critical that the CIA realizes uh, those handling the documents that his reputation is better served in the long term by full disclosure on these than on fighting sometimes for withholding these sections of files. Mark, what's your take on that? Well, I, I agree that one would hope 58 years later or 59 by the time the next deadline happens that the CIA could get past its reputational concerns. But uh, I, I see too often the institutional bias of the agency. It's so hard. It's like a, a, you know, an ocean going carrier on the sea. It just takes it so long to change direction that I, I kind of, Still, I'm somewhat pessimistic. There are good people within all of the agencies, including the CIA, some of whom have been my clients who have really pushed to have information declassified. But it's it's amazing how obstinate some folks still remain, even though there's I can't imagine there's anyone still at the CIA who was working with the CIA back, you know, 58 years ago. I mean, maybe that maybe there's one person. I don't know. It would have been true with uh, Charlie Allen up until a few years ago, but there aren't too many others like him. Yeah, certainly they would have obviously been incredibly junior. I suppose there could be somebody in their late 70s or early 80s that are doing things, but who knows? But, I, you know, it's, it's amazing. As we're doing this podcast, I, I got an email. I don't know if, Gerald, you're on the email or not from a fellow researcher who just sent us 110 pages of new JFK related files that came from the Mexican archives that hmm. we would not have seen here in the United States. Uh, of course, oh, they're all in fantastic. Spanish, so I can't read one word of them, <laughs> but uh, maybe there's something in there that says that Oswald did or did not do it. Well, that's fantastic. I'll have to take that. I didn't see that. I'll have to take that batch of files. And I, I live in Miami, as you know, I'll have to go uh, down to uh, Versailles uh, restaurant, and probably find some old anti-Castro Cubans who can uh, translate that for me today. I'll let you know, Mark, if there's anything yeah. interesting. You have a homework assignment, Gerald. And you, have right. to let, you have to let both of us know. Absolutely. <laughs> but I'll tell you, back in the 90s, I was representing the son of the former station chief, Winston Scott, in Me who was in Mexico City, in charge of the station in Mexico City when Oswald visited. And Win Scott died in 1970, but he wrote an autobiography, basically, that he wanted to publish that never was. Uh, he was looking for it to be in Reader's Digest because he was friends with John Barron, who had written about the CIA. And that manuscript was seized by the CIA. And and James Angleton, you know, a very famous CIA person that caused lots of problems in history, uh, personally went down there searching for it. And when I sued for the manuscript, which is now part of the JFK collection, actually, it took nine years for us to get the CIA to reveal, and there's a drum roll now here, that Alan Dulles had been the third director of the CIA. That, wow, stunning. No, it's remarkable. That's a great payoff for all those years of work, Mark. Uh, yes. and, and you know, uh, David, what Mark talks about, uh, so I'm sort of, uh, 
I get my hopes up that each time uh, there's a new deadline, that this will be the deadline that everybody steps in line and, and sort of, you know, the release comes out. And then Mark is the one who throws cold water on it. But because he's a realist, because he works in the area and he's active in, you know, as a, as a lawyer and, uh, you know, trying to get government documents. So he understands when he says that the institutional memory is it lasts for decades and decades and makes it difficult and he's pessimistic then he sort of you know brings me to a more realistic way of looking at it and uh the i think that he when i listen to him i unfortunately think he's right probably about that so that we shouldn't necessarily think that the uh that next year will be the the final time we have to deal with the, right. the question of some of these documents still staying sealed well mark and then gerald i'll ask you each for a final word on this. Based on all of your experience across the decades, the remaining documents, once we push out the ones that are likely due to FBI informants, uh, and that is the reason they're still being held out, once we look at all of the CIA documents and the ones that relate to sources and methods and assets and information about other intelligence operations tangential to the assassination, um, but that are still being protected. Once we rule out even the ones that are being inappropriately held back for reputational concerns, do you think there are any documents left in here that will actually fundamentally change our assessment of what happened during the assassination itself and who was responsible? Mark, you first. The easy answer would be no. If if you believe that Oswald was a lone gunman, you will continue to believe that. If you believe that Oswald is either part of a conspiracy or maybe a complete patsy himself, as he yelled out to reporters at the Dallas police headquarters, then you're going to continue to believe that. And what's going to happen is it's going to shift over to, okay, there's nothing in these documents. So that means the government destroyed the real key documents. And quite frankly, the government probably just, we know the government destroyed lots of key documents over the years. And some of them we're still searching for. And some of them we may actually be able to find. I'm working on something now actually relating to Mexico City that may be able to reveal certain additional information. But I think what anything that new that comes out, it's not going to reveal something significant with November 22nd, 63. It's going to be more of events before and events after, and particularly what we've actually already discussed. It's going to reveal that the agencies, particularly the CIA and the FBI, withheld knowingly information from other investigative bodies, and which is going to be embarrassing for them, but still at the end of the day, not move the ball forward, except to the conspiracists who are going to point to it and say, see, that reveals that there must have been a conspiracy. It doesn't it. reveal any such thing, but that that's where we're at with this point. Although I'm all in favor of releasing all these documents, I have a current FOIA lawsuit for more of these documents because transparency is key. And the more information we get out there for historians to review and digest, the better it will be for us, at least in history. Gerald, you have the last word. Do you think there's anything out there that will fundamentally change your assessment? I don't. And uh, I do think that some of the headlines that we may get when the documents are finally out may have not as much to do with the JFK assassination itself as to other matters. I mean, for instance, there are, you know, five grand jury and court sealed records in there relating to the FBI and organized crime. 
the there may be material in there quite interesting there's something still connected to watergate because of howard hunt that we may find something quite interesting so they, there's a number of things and 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 cia operations that that were considered assassination records but really involved operations with other countries on different matters so we may get headlines unconnected to Oswald, who did it, who killed Kennedy. I think that uh, Mark's absolutely right. It won't slow down for one moment. Uh, those who believe that there was a conspiracy behind the death of the president, uh, the, the failure to find a, a key document or a series of documents uh, that make a case different than Oswald alone and prove the Warren Commission was wrong will not stop people from saying they must have destroyed the key material and still keep looking for it. We will put a wrap on it for now, but I will say we will unwrap this again if and when we have a final release of all of these documents. Mark Zaid, Gerald Posner, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please help us spread the word about the podcast. Social media is appreciated, but word of mouth is also appreciated. Tell a friend about the Lawfare Podcast and our other podcasts, Rational Security and Chatter. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo was our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.